All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. This is a quote from Shakespeare's play As You Like It and you're listening to a seven-part programme series called As We Like It which looks at each of these seven ages. In this programme we look at the first stage, infancy. At first, the infant, meowling and puking in the nurse's arms. The newborn baby has just spent 40 weeks developing in its mother's womb, a dark, watery space that consultant obstetrician Professor Ray O'Sullivan likens to the experience of scuba diving. You're weightless. It's a really peaceful place to be, surrounded by sounds that that are incredible, the sound of the sea and, and things like that. You know you can't get to the surface quickly because you know, you're know you down at depth and you have to ascend slowly. So it can't go anywhere. Babies can't go anywhere. Down underneath, you're relying on something else. And you're actually relying on other people to have filled those tanks with oxygen or air. You, you're relying on people to have got all that right. So like a baby's relying on its mother to do all the right things as well. So for them in there, it's dark, sure. And the, the beating of a mother's heart is probably there. The sound she can hear her mother speak. You know, they, they're aware of all that's going on around them. But it's purely zen. So it's quite, it's quite uh, amazing what goes on inside there. But yeah, that's why I think my, my thinking of what's like in the womb is that peaceful place you get when you're diving. With this analogy, it's understandable why a baby could get a shock when it emerges into the world. When I think back now to, to emerging from the, the surface after a dive and you're taking those first few breaths of air yourself, you're not on the, the regulator on the tanks anymore. The, the senses are all assaulted by everything that's going on. Where's the boat, the rocks, the cliffs, the sky? All the senses are assailed all at the same time. Uh, I'm sure it's the same for a baby coming out. I'm sure it absolutely is. And and even worse again, if you've had a big lummox of an obstetrician like me grabbing a hold of your head at a C-section or putting a forceps or a vacuum on your head and taking you out of your mother, so really extracting you into the into the, the cold, the light, the noise of, of the outside world. But I think in some ways that, that's necessary to, to stimulate you into your own self-sufficiency. You are now running on your own steam. So going from cord and placenta and mum to just going it alone probably needs that shock, yeah. Now, it is probably too shocking for what we do. Between forceps and vacuums and C-sections is probably quite violent. It should be more of a gentle birthing and sort of, yeah, sure, you the cold and the air you breathe and these things should stimulate you. But now we've kind of really frightened the living daylights out of a lot of babies, I think. birth is, is a very interesting experience because it, it is a birth rebirth cycle for a child to be born it is almost equivalent to it dying because it has to let go the other environment it's in to really engage with the new environment so it has to die to that world to be born in this one and that that's quite a psychological struggle for the infant in that moment because what it's doing is it's letting go of the other to become itself. Mark Redmond works as a psychotherapist in Kilkenny. His studies introduced him to the work of Stanislav Grof, who researched non-ordinary states of consciousness. Yeah, he's from Czechoslovakia, a psychiatrist. Back in the 60s, he would have come into contact with LSD. There was research being done on it as, as a healing drug. So he would have performed a lot of research with LSD. 
in controlled circumstances, helping psychotic patients and whatever, and, and would have taken a lot himself and done research on it. But one thing he noticed in it when he was going through the, um, the experience of the trips or whatever, it was he felt, oh my God, these people are going through their birth experience. They're reliving their births. So he got very curious about that and, and done a lot of research in it. So Stanislav Grof, for example, would talk about four phases to the birth process. Phase one is what he calls it, the amniotic experience. That's where the child is in the womb. It's in the amniotic fluid and it literally is swimming around in a carefree world. It's a wonderful experience. Now that can be in that as the stress, the hormones in the mother oscillates, so will the experience in the womb. Um, but generally... Um, People connecting back to that experience, you know, can identify with fish and dolphins swimming. And but then when it gets quite oppressive, the experience even more of yeah, fish swimming in toxic water. But then as the birth nears, it comes into the second phase, and that is the time is coming to be born. The contractions start, but the cervix is not open. So the child is experiencing these incredible pressures, but there's no way out. The whole world is changing, doesn't know where it's going, doesn't see a way out. And when that phase is, is quite long, you know, that can be yeah, quite daunting for the child. But then once the cervix does open, it sees, OK, this is a way. And then, of course, there is the birth struggle itself. You know, that's quite a, an ordeal. But it's not as bad as the previous one because it, it sort of feels, yeah, it knows where it's going somewhere. There's, a, there's hope in it. And then, of course, with the birth itself, there is then there's the the great achievement it's seen a struggle through it's almost like winning the gold medal at the Olympics you're up on top of the podium you've made it so part of real depth psychotherapy we could almost go back to those phases of the birth experience any change we want to go through in life we'll go through those four phases the first phase you know we're in the, the amniotic universe of where we're living now we're quite content but then comes the point where we feel propelled to do something differently we don't know where we're going. We don't want to stay where we are. So that can be quite a painful struggle. But then once we do know the direction we want to take, you know, the cervix opens more or less, we then we do move forward and we go about changing what we're at. But after we've passed through all that, we've arrived where we're at. It's, we have a great sense of achievement. In caesarean births, the, the child doesn't have to go through that struggle. Um, but imagine you're in that struggle, you don't know where you are, and all of a sudden you're plucked out. It's almost like something miraculous has happened. You've been rescued from an awful situation. So the tendency in life is can be to, in struggles is to wait for that rescue. That's I think is the one of the biggest dynamics that a cesarean struggles with. Um, but it is for them in change to actually yeah find their own agency to do things. I'm not saying it's any easier or harder for them to find that agency within in themselves. But a tendency is, yeah, to wait for the magic wand to appear and <laughs> winning the lotto as the solution to their problems. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of non-Caesarians <laughs> have that desire too, of course. Like, I, I also had that. <laughs> Groff would have saw it as a source of a lot of neurosis, the birth experience, or, or being very formative. But it would, uh, would be my belief that you don't have to go working through your birth experience to alleviate all your problems. That wouldn't be my belief. Such knowledge and insights into the impact of birth on an infant are a relatively new phenomenon when one looks at the long evolutionary history of our species. 
the thoughts on labor is that a female of our species needed to know to go someplace safe and quiet. And so that's what labor exists for, that you get several hours to prepare. Because if a baby just fell out, it would be eaten by predators. Modern man is only around for a couple hundred years compared to the hundred thousand years of human existence. So for much of our existence, it was about finding shelter. So we've been wandering the savannas of Africa or different parts of the world and the contractions would have started. The tribe, the, the small family grouping would have moved to some place of safety so that the female could deliver. And then she would breastfeed and carry that baby back on the next journey. And, and this is before we, we settled down. That's when we were hunter-gatherers. And we did that for a long period of time. And I often look at labor like that. And I often look at pregnancy like that. It's a very natural thing. And some of the instincts that exist in a woman around that, we often ignore now. We've kind of really brought them into this kind of sterile environment with noises that are probably unnatural, with feelings and sensations that are unnatural. Uh, not saying that everyone needs to go out and deliver in caves now, but I think people can understand, could understand from me what I'm kind of saying there. We've really changed how we go about it. But that said, the maternal mortality and the mortality for babies back you know, through several hundred thousand years of our existence would have been huge, would have been very high. Mothers would have died in labor and babies would have died. So, you know, you could say, look, nature is a natural thing, but so is dying. And so we've we've we don't take that as, a, as an option anymore. Anything but a good outcome is, is a failure. Um, and people talk about it, it's very natural. And I kind of in the back of my mind, I never say it out loud, but in the back of my mind, I say, well, for a woman to die in labor or something afterwards or for a baby to die is natural, too. So we don't allow that happen. So we've had to intervene to mitigate that risk and prevent that thing, thing happen. It's just not allowable, both professionally from the midwives and ourselves, but also from, from women in society. It's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. Death is not acceptable. Even damage isn't acceptable. And I think people need to understand, too, that doctors and midwives don't ever go out on a given day to harm anybody. In fact, everyone wants to do 100% and do the best job they can. But we're fighting nature. Nature is often fighting against us. And we're trying to fight the other direction, pull the other direction. And that's why we've become necessary, I suppose, because nature and, and, and all the things natural about pregnancy has a downside. That's, that's why we're around. That's why we exist. The existence of the medicalised birth process has been around for a few hundred years. And in that time, it has gone through many different forms. It's been an interesting journey from the man midwives to the midwives, from the lying in hospitals to the getting back out of the hospitals to back into the hospitals. So this ebb and flow. And we're now seeing this move maybe back out again of hospitals, the home births and things like that. Maybe that's the, the way to go and we should be encouraging. So in this whole area, historically, there's been this shift in and out of the hospitals and driven commercially, driven by the women themselves, delivered by the vested interests, you know. So we're at a, another, uh, you know, sort of turning point. Uh, as I'm saying here, women are not patients, they are women. I personally believe most women should be delivered in hospital. I, I think there's some things that happen so quickly in labour that being at home is, you know, you, you, you won't have as good an outcome, I think, ultimately. Um, is if you delivered in hospital. Now, that said, low-risk women who've had a baby before, they could probably deliver in a field. You know, but it's that first baby especially. Yeah. You know, if we can show that that first baby can come out safely, I think afterwards, after that subsequent pregnancy, is usually, uh, deliveries are usually straightforward. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's contentious. Yeah, I guess when we were expecting our first we started to look into birth um, and into parenting because we wanted to see what options were there and what was available. 
Eilish Walklet is a mother to three children, and while pregnant with her first child, she became aware of contradictory attitudes to birth. I had seen and witnessed growing up that a lot of women, they kind of held their own and had a certain strength during pregnancy, and that was almost honoured. But then all that ability seemed to be taken away from them as soon as it came to birthing, and it was almost as if, like, they were kind of led down the path of believing that they, they couldn't do it without a lot of intervention and a lot of support. And that didn't make sense in my head that like if you're able to grow a baby for nine months and you know how to do everything week by week, that then you suddenly lose that ability just when you when you go into labour. With this in mind, Eilish and her husband researched the options that would enable them to have the most empowered birth. Their first child was born in hospital. At the time, it was quite limited what was available. It was literally the hospital births. We tried to get a home birth midwife, but there was none based around Kilkenny at the time. And by the time the other two came along, home birthing was available in Kilkenny. We really enjoyed at home, like we would have made a whole birthing space where we'd have the pool blown up. We'd like fairy lights everywhere, affirmations coloured in and stuck up on the walls, pictures of the previous kids just as they were born. So you'd something to focus on the entire time. Um, And then obviously all the different comfort measures like massage and even using the pool um, is is an amazing pain reliever. Um, And it's just you're a lot more relaxed for sure. You know, you don't have a journey to the hospital. You don't have to answer loads of questions. The midwives are literally in the kitchen having cups of tea and they'll come in and check and they kind of leave you alone um, and just kind of check the heartbeat every now and then. But it's very hands-off, very relaxed. Um, And then obviously as soon as baby arrives, you can just get into bed um, or get onto the couch. And then mine always, I labour during the night and they're born very early morning. So you just, you have your tea and toast, you have a shower, you get into bed and then you have visitors maybe by lunchtime, one or two, you know, um, have a big hot dinner um, of stuff that you like. (laughs) And obviously it's easier for the siblings. It's part of family life. Like it's it's part of, of your routine, part of your day. It doesn't have such maybe a, disruptive effect as well do you know it's it's normal for the kids and it makes birth normal as well which is something that I'm really trying to do with women that it is a normal process and um because it's kind of slightly almost been taken from being normal um and and very very medicalized for really low risk births which it doesn't need to be obviously there's cases always where you know, medicine actually saves people that babies that would never have survived years ago. But it's just perhaps used a little bit too much. A little bit more oil, about the size of a quarter in your hands again to do leg number two. From her own experiences with gentle birth techniques, Eilish went on to train as a gentle birth instructor and doula and baby massage facilitator. And I think for baby massage, it's many things. It's... It's obviously the massage, which like with the reflexology and everything, it does help get the organs and the systems and everything working really well. But I think more so even it's for mom, like she's in a group, you know, that community kind of feel with moms with other babies the same age. Um, And it's really important at the early stages as well to have a safe space where you can talk about things, you know, and follow your gut. And it really kind of helps with postnatal depression and kind of anxiety that comes after having a baby. But also that attachment again, the kind of you before you ever massage a baby. You're always asking for consent. You're making eye to eye contact. You're gauging their responses, all their cues. 
Um, and that can be hard, you know, if you're trying to do that at home, you know, because you have all the other mundane tasks of life that you have to do. And then if there's other toddlers, that can just kind of get lost. Um, so it's that lovely little time every week where it's just the two of you. So bonding is naturally going to kind of occur anyway. And again, having a baby like we see on TV, you know, it's it's so unrealistic and the the labors are nearly always unrealistic but then the as soon as baby's born is totally unrealistic because it's always tears of joy and happiness and everything is elated and that's not the case for so many people because it's a new person um that you have to get to know and you don't know them you know in that sense um so i think baby massage really helps with that and you're you're forming a relationship then oh It's believed that this relationship between a parent and infant is an important developmental stage. Psychotherapist Mark Redmond. There's one thing that stands out from many other mammals. We are utterly dependent as infants on our environment, on the mother. So in the formation of the self of the infant, what really comes up is, can I trust the environment in which I find myself? So if I feel a need, will will it be sated? So if, if needs are not sated, then it's sort of a mistrust starts to form with the environment. And if that's chronic, then it's a um, key time where we can then start to mistrust ourselves. Deep root to self-esteem and all that can be, in, can be in this area of one's life. And, you know, always have to throw in the caveat that, you know, this is not about blaming anybody and people have to be perfect. You know, people do the best they can as mothers and infants and everything and the parents, the mother especially, has to trust herself. Because a little bit about trust will be, the child will pick it up from the mother. So if the mother trusts herself, it's, it's quite beneficial for the child. The baby at this stage exists in a bubble of eating, sleeping and pooing and doesn't have any concept of the world beyond itself. In the womb and then in the first nine months, certainly, the world is, is itself. It uh, doesn't know itself as a separate entity. The mother is just part of it still. You know, life does literally revolve around (laughs) the child. And in this comfortable cocoon, responses are instinctual. Babies are amazing. Like on our second, I had seen videos on the the breast crawl. Um, So we said, I really wanted to try it because I didn't know about it on my first. So you just place baby on your tummy as soon as they're born and you don't touch them. Um, And they actually make their way that you can see them kind of literally crawling up and um, they're just focused on your nipple Um, and it's secreting a scent that's the same as the kind of fluid that they've been in and they can just see it and they will make their way to it and they actually will without any help. It could take them a little bit longer than you putting them to the breast, but they they do it. It's amazing just how everything is wired together. And especially if it's uninterrupted, all of that works in sync. Mm-hmm. Do you know, obviously, if there's complications and baby needs to be taken, you know, all that will be delayed. But, um, yeah, it's really beautiful when when it, it goes smoothly mm-hmm. um, and then nature takes its course. And then as soon as they start to, to suckle, it um, helps to expel the placenta. So everything is working with, in, with rhythm with each other. Um, and then feeding each time as well. It's um, the, the uterus contracts very quickly when the baby's breastfeeding. And that can actually be one of the most painful things, you know, because your uterus is going down 
almost quicker each time. So the after pains, that's what women talk about. So you can feel that a lot more when you're feeding. Um, but it just it, on the upside, then everything is going back quite quickly. Um, so there's, there's pros and cons to everything. Um, and hospitals now and midwives, like wherever you give birth, they're really conscious and they're much more aware now of babies and kind of of what they need. Um, I think years ago, they weren't seen as much in that sense. You know, it was very kind of practical. You know, babies maybe don't have as much emotions. And and they used to believe that babies couldn't feel pain up until like the early 90s. So it's it's quite new that they, they, the research now has shown that, you know, the more kind of skin to skin, the more attached they are. It regulates temperature, heartbeat. It's like the kangaroo care for the preterm babies now. So like in a lot of places, instead of leaving them in incubators, they're on the chest all day long. It's like a proper way of kind of binding them on. And it's shown that it speeds recovery and stuff much quicker. A baby is the culmination of a huge amount of cell division and organ development that began the moment of conception. The development of all these body structures can be viewed through ultrasound. Ultrasound, it's sound waves that penetrate through the abdomen into the uterus and it reflects back an image onto the screen of what we're looking at when we're looking at the baby. Just to show you there's a nice view of this little baby's spine. Joe Scobie works as a specialist midwife stenographer at the Women's Health Group in Kilkenny. You can see beautiful parallel bicycle tracks and the skin covering it the whole way down. And that's really, really important to see. And then we can see a little picture of this baby's stomach here and its head here. And we know that the stomach is full of fluid, I mean that the baby's drinking and swallowing. And that's all very, very important as well. The scans are so sophisticated now that they can pick up the developing fetus even at six weeks. We provide a a very early ultrasound scan from about 6 to 11 weeks and that's a very reassuring scan especially for ladies who have any kind of abdominal pain or or cramps in their tummy or maybe if they're unsure of their dates. Now from 11 to about 13 weeks we can do a slightly later early scan. We can check an awful lot more things at that scan because we can see them better. Uh, The 20-21 week detailed anomaly scan or some people call it the big scan or the detailed scan People have different names for it. But essentially that scan is to look for fetal abnormalities. And I always say, you know, sometimes parents would say to me, but Joe, what's the point of picking up a fetal abnormality? What can be done about it? And I say, a lot can be done about it. Because if I see a little baby that has something wrong with its heart or something wrong with one of the other organs, that can, baby can be delivered in Dublin in the specialist centre where it can be given the best possible start in life, where it has, you know, fetal medicine experts and also Crumlin at the doorstep. But we've also got to remember that the majority of babies are normal, you know, and this is a wonderful job and I absolutely love my job and I love scanning couples and I love to see that excitement on their face when they see the baby's heartbeat or when they hear the heartbeat and watch them, the two of them looking at their little pictures at the end of the scan in amazement. That It's such a wonderful job. I feel very privileged to be part of that little episode in their lives of sharing that time with their baby and uh, and I think that's really, really special. Ultrasound was first used for clinical purposes in 1956, ten years after Boris Nurse Ellen Ryan began her training in midwifery. Ellen died in 2017, and Breed Ryan is her daughter. Mammy was Nurse Ellen Ryan. She was born in Ballaline, between Michel and Ballon. 
her mother and father were farmers. Her grandparents were farmers. She did her secondary school in Bagnallstown and then went on to London to Whips Cross to do her nurse training in general nursing and fever. And she would have worked in London during the war, during the Second World War. Would have had great stories to tell us really about her time in London, remembering the blitz and the bombings and the blackouts. So she graduated in Whips Cross and I think she got an award for her nursing achievements there. And then she came back to Hollis Street and did her midwifery, where she also won the gold medal after doing her, her midwifery. Um, she worked for a while as a district nurse from Hollis Street. That time they would have had to go out on their push bike with their bag and deliver babies in the community. Um, she would have had great stories as well, really, about horrific things that would have happened when she was nursing in Dublin. Like there would have been backstreet abortions at that stage in Ireland. And often then a nurse was sent out from Hollis Street to face God knows what in a house where somebody was in trouble and they'd be brought into Hollis Street and looked after. She moved from there then. She got the district nurse position in Boris in County Carlow. And she spent over 40 years here on the district. So this is my grandmother's memoir. My sister bought the book for it to fill in years ago and she kind of stopped and started at it a bit. Kira O'Connell is granddaughter of Ellen Ryan and these are some passages from her memoir. In November 1946, a vacancy came in Boris Rahana and Ballinkillen area. I applied. There were seven applicants, but again, I was picked. I was notified from County Carlow Health Office. It may be that my health was good and I was not a smoker or a boozer. <laughs> And I had good sight and all my own teeth. <laughs> all her own teeth. <laughs> all <her> own teeth. <laughs> no problem having a good health certificate when you did not have any money to spend. That was how it was. <laughs> my first call out, everything went perfect. Baby boy, he came to my resignation 40 years later. Mammy would have been off maybe when you'd wake up in the morning, she was gone. And I know the older ones of us often um, say that they thought there was a baby factory on the farm because she'd come back and they'd be after being a boy or a girl born or twins born, but none of us ever saw the babies. So everybody assumed that there was a little factory someplace that these babies were in. I remember as a small child here, there'd be big boxes of Liga delivered, but they were far babies that were after being born. And if you were caught down in the room where the Liga was, your legs were red when you left it. In those days, we had no electricity, no phones, and cars were very scarce. Husbands came for me and hired cars. I was able to drive when I was 16 years old. The car was a baby Ford. I was allowed to get more petrol than most other people. We were allowed a certain amount of coupons, which we got from the county council. In those days, the people were so nice to me that I, I seemed to be in heaven. All were church goers. Everybody prayed for happiness and for safe delivery to mother and baby. Families were big, and quite a big number were twins. I accompanied the parents with their babies to baptism. I asked the clergy to have warm water to pour on the babies' heads. I felt cold water was too shock-inducing. They were very agreeable. No more shock, no more scream. In all, Ellen Ryan delivered 4,047 babies in the Boris area. 4,047, was it? Yeah, I think it was 4,047 babies and she never lost a baby or a mother. At the time of her funeral, one of the G local GPs, he said to me, do you know, he said, if somebody handed me your mother's district bag and a flash lamp, I think I'd have a heart attack if he was going to deliver a baby. And yet she did all that on her own with rarely would there be backup of a doctor at the time. 
the district midwife was the front line. Um, she had her district bag and I can remember there was a special saucepan here and that was actually for boiling the instruments that she would use when she was out. And she would boil them. She would have boiled something cotton that she had and wrapped them into that then that they were sterile for the next baby she went to deliver. And she had this lovely brown district bag with all her equipment in it. It was a huge responsibility, but I don't think she looked at it as a a responsibility. I think she looked at it that she was doing something that she loved Mm -hmm. and she was absolutely brilliant at her job. Mm -hmm. Herself and Dr. Murray, when he was in Boris, I think it was, started the antenatal clinics here. Was it Dr. Ryan first first. and then Dr. Murray took over um, that the antenatal clinics went on here as well. um, There was a lot of at the time when the... um, Travelling people were, were travelling with their pony and traps and out the pony and traps would park up the road here because there would be one of the ladies pregnant and Mammy always delivered the babies. So about the travelling community, all the expectant mothers who were based as far as Carlo Tullo and Escorty, Thomastown, Lachlan Bridge, Bagnastown, Burris or the mountain called to see me. They needed to see somebody who would understand them. I helped as much as I could and I never had problems. They were great. At any time when they came to visit me, I would sit them down and have something to eat. They loved all this pampering. Now it's time to try to find out when they're expected their baby to arrive. Well, Nurse Ryan, I think this happened at the last full moon before Christmas. Now, Mrs X, I have not got a last year's calendar. Can you tell me any more? Well, Nurse, I think I felt a little movement last week. This lady visited me regularly until her baby was born in hospital. She still kept calling to me for ages. She was a real good mother. She was a real textbook person. She was illiterate but very intelligent. When baby was about three months old, she called to see me. She hadn't breastfeeding but was deciding to stop. Baby was doing fine. She had her own recipe for baby. I was about to explain to her how she should make the change over when she put her hand inside the baby shawl and handed me a bottle of Guinness. The baby sucked away, no problems. After this, the family move away. I do not know where to, but I do know they were nice people. She was very good in the community. It really only when after she died that people coming to the funeral told us about different things. Like she used to come with maybe a sheet to a house where she'd be delivering a baby if she thought that circumstances weren't good. Or she'd arrive the morning the baby would be christened, which might be two or three days later. And she'd have a christening dress and she'd have a blanket and she might have food like she'd always bake brown bread or have a ham cooked. They were stories that I personally didn't know until after she died that people were telling us about. I don't think we'll ever see the like of her again in our in our time anyway, with all the things she did. She was just uh, probably a woman ahead of her times, really. Almost 70 years on and Claire Kennedy holds the role of Advanced Midwife Practitioner in St Luke's Hospital for Carlo and Kilkenny. So I suppose advanced practice is kind of a new emerging role that's coming into the HSC. Um, I suppose what defines an advanced practitioner is their decision making capacity and their, their governance structures and their, I suppose, how we practice would be slightly different than the traditional midwifery role. I suppose my area of speciality is midwifery care, which would be normality, promoting normality, promoting decision-making with women and their, and their partners. I suppose, you know, traditionally women would have booked under an obstetric consultant. And now women who are what we class as the maternity strategy, normal risk. 
So supported care pathways can book under myself and under the team of midwives for care. The women who attend the um, the care pathways that's midwifery led, one of the, um, I suppose, the cohorts of, of clients that we take on myself would be for continuity of care. So continuity of care is not a new concept to midwifery or, or obstetrics, seeing the same person for your pregnancy. The research has shown if you see the same health provider, you're more, you have better outcomes in your birth and your pregnancy. And I suppose one of the, the recommendations, the National Maternity Strategy that was launched in Ireland is promote continuity of care so we're all feasible we try to have the same care see the same ladies and I suppose you build up a rapport with the couple you know they they might disclose things to you that they wouldn't normally to a health provider and there's a real trust there both ways that you both have an understanding you know of where you're at and what you need from that appointment you find as as the pregnancy goes on and then hopefully if you're at the birth that you nearly know before you enter the room what that couple is hoping for what what outcomes they're hoping for what processes they're looking for mm-hmm. it's, it's a real it's a beautiful relationship to have in a pregnancy with your healthcare provider strategies like the maternity strategy I suppose sometimes people say well what do these strategies do on the ground but like I can most certainly say here in St Luke's we've seen the benefits of the maternity strategy their support and getting um, new services set up and established here I suppose my own role is, is coming from the maternity strategy as well um, and like we, they speak about vulnerable groups so vulnerable groups of women who may be social isolation, domestic violence you know who might have um, drug or alcohol abuse or mental health issues those are the women that really benefit from continuity of care because they mightn't have always disclosed to healthcare professionals in the past and I suppose pregnancy is a real opportunity to touch women who have never attended H- HSC services and you know it's a real opportunity to assist those women you know and to help them in any way you can it's very different for every person we always say no birth is the same even for women who've birthed before um, I suppose we talk about the latent stage of birth and, and that's where your body is preparing for birth and women talk about getting Braxton Hicks and feeling uncomfortable some women speak about nesting and that they feel they can't sit down they have to get prepared they have to get ready I suppose the hormones that come into play in the third trimester of pregnancy they do influence us um, you know women talk about having unrest and unease and feeling that they need to be actively doing something and that's very common in the third trimester I suppose some women, when when the birth process starts, they might have a show. That's a preparation where the mucus plug is leaving the cervix preparation for birth. Some women say, you know, the waters may go. That's And sometimes, it, like we say, it might not always be like the Hollywood movie where the waters go and it's a rush to the hospital. Sometimes for first-time mothers, it can be up to 18 hours after the waters go before the birth process starts. And then I suppose some women have the, you know, contractions, which are, again, your uterus preparing you for birth and, and getting the baby, you know, to start the birth process. But like I said, we always say to first time couples and, and second time couples that these don't always come in a numeric order, that they can be very different. And even the second time around birthing process can be very different than the first. Claire loves her job and so does consultant obstetrician Professor Ray O'Sullivan. Even though he sees pregnancy and birth every day, it still remains a wonderment to him. I watch it on ultrasound every day. You know, you see it from the, the very get-go right the way through. It's just, it's amazing. It's miraculous. It's part of this wonderment at how does it happen at all. You know, so many babies do miscarry. Uh, and, and many of those miscarriages occur without even the woman ever knowing. But at the same time, when it all goes well and everything, it's miraculous. It's, it's just incredible. Watching 
the birth process, be it by cesarean section or be it normally or be it by assistance, whatever we, you know, we're helping women with, was just that room changing. You, you start with a woman and you wind up with a mother. It's just the most amazing kind of room to be in. And the wonderment is just there all the time. And at my core, it is about what life's about. You know, we can all have success and fame in our lives, etc. But it's actually about having people to share that with. And that's what birth and, and, and pregnancy is about. And a lot of people aren't aware, like there's 175 million births around the world every year. And then interestingly, 125 million people die every year around the world. But there's uh, that 25 million extra on the planet every year, all of them growing up and having their own families. We can see the way we're, where we're heading up to over the 7 billion people now. Once the baby is born, well, then there's an African proverb that says it takes a whole village to raise a child support for the new family is important and so I go to the Could You meeting in Kilkenny which was set up by Lucy Glendinning in 2009. I run a support group once a week where mothers can come and chat, ask questions, I give them information and maybe some practical help and they get to meet their new colleagues is what I always say to them. Oh it's lovely like coming into groups like this Quidju is just it's an amazing support just at the start even just make make one comment to maybe just say whatever to make a comment about you know feeding or how it's going or whatever and one other mother might just say oh I feel the exact same and you just feel automatically at ease that you're not out at sea that you're not the only one you're not the only mother in the world and it's just like I have one of the girls even at the other side of the room it's her third baby as well and we, we've been friends since pretty much the day we arrived here and our three kids are pretty much the same age so life life friends as well do you know so great support group but you know great great for the kids as well because they're actually playmates now but oh an amazing support I suppose particularly at the start when it is a totally new world and I still think going from no children to one child is still the biggest learning curve because some people would say to me going from two to three was it a big big deal it's just a little bit more organization and you have to be organized but I still think yeah having no children and going to one child was still the biggest shock it's a very challenging job. It's a huge job. It's highly underestimated, the, the job of what women do, and, and their partners as well, and husbands. There's a really big need there for women, particularly to support other women within our community and to acknowledge the importance of the job that women do as, as, as new mothers. Your baby has certain needs, um, and those are basically to be loved and to be fed. It doesn't know anything else. Babies don't read any of the books. They don't care about times. They don't care about night and day. And if you can meet their needs and ignore the people who tell you to put your baby down, that you'd be spoiling your baby and all those other things, then it becomes much easier for you to enjoy your baby. So this is Keela. Yeah, and she's now 10 weeks old. And uh, she's a great little one. Yeah, hence being a sane mother right now of two under two. <laughs> Over those 10 weeks, what have you seen? Have you seen changes in her? Oh, totally. From this little kind of newborn without kind of, I suppose, this murky personality that you're trying to develop. And, um, you know, she's just blossomed into this smiley little kind of, you know, creation of yours, which you're so proud of, you know. 
mm-hmm. and any challenges along the way? No, well, I suppose initially my first little girl was kind of a little bit unwell and obviously your own gut concerns are you just want everything to be normal and we had to be monitored and the hospital were great for 10 days and we were in there but all you do is just anything in the world to make them, you know, right and I think going in second time round you're a little bit more assured, you know um, but no, I think the only concerns you have kind of is support around you being friends and family and I would be new enough to Kilkenny I'll only be here kind of three years this year and it was really, really important on my first to kind of open up you know to say that you do need kind of more um, friends and you know family around you at that point so I think that's a big big thing for you know the start of a new motherhood you just want people around you to have every day and the long days and nights you just want you know somebody there I suppose if you do need to talk yeah that's an exciting journey and I think you know you do it all again in the morning even if it was good or bad this is little um, Avian. Yeah. And Aveen, tell us what Aveen's at now. So Aveen's at uh, seven weeks and we went to the doctors yesterday. So she had her, uh, well, a week later, six week checkup and all's going well and uh, she's up to weight and uh, it's thriving. So it's really good. So that must be satisfying for you. Well, it's really good because this is, uh, this is my, Aveen's my second. So I have a son, Oshin, who's 22 months now. And it's a completely different journey. So the first time was difficult enough um, with the breastfeeding and um, he had tongue tie. Uh, so we had quite a few obstacles. And uh, this time now it's like completely different journey. I, I feel like a different person. She's obviously, you know, different to Oshin. But... Um, it's amazing to see the differences and to see how much she's thriving. And last time we were literally watching the charts of the growth and the weight. And, the, and it, was, it was difficult and you were, you were anxious before every kind of weighing in with the, the public health nurse. But this time it, you just, there's no anxiety. You know she's doing really well. So it's lovely. So, to, the, so both journeys being so different, it kind of makes you appreciate now that I have an easier time. It makes me appreciate now, you know. And that's the thing about babies. They are all incredibly different and they are unique and there's no two alike, even or especially within families. My boy's the oldest girl in the middle and then I have a boy again. Um, Yeah, very different. Very different developmentally as well. Um, And I think even at the sports groups, um, even my first boy, he wouldn't walk till he was nearly, I suppose comfortably until nearly 17, 18 months, but knew that then from support groups that was normal enough, that that not every baby walks at the same time, whereas my girl then walked earlier. And just, you know, I suppose that they're all at different stages and you're coming across so many different babies when you do come to groups like this, that you know that there are different norms that, you know, even with feeding and if when you're feeding the baby, that you know, once the baby is happy and once the baby is, you know, producing nappies, I suppose they say that, you know, they're, the, the milk is going in and, you know, things like that. And you, you will question yourself, but yeah. Their friend of mine would have said after I had my first... Um, well, they don't know if you're doing it right or wrong. There is no rule book. So pretty much, yeah, go with your instincts and go with the flow. So. Um, this is Ivy and I'm Melanie and she's my second baby. Yeah. She's three months. So, yeah, she's a nice big girl. She is. Yeah. And over those three months, then, obviously, you've been... Tell us about that journey. Um, so we've been adjusting to family as a, as a family of four. So um, we have a three and a half year old who just started preschool. Uh, two days after Ivy was born so it's been a bit hectic but um, getting around to all the different groups and that and 
meeting other new new mothers and second time round and third time rounds and sure it's great fun. The early days are the easiest really, aren't they? Yeah. Um, she's a little bit more content with other family members. So when I had my son, he was just attached to me all the time, whereas she's happy enough to be with my mother or my husband or my son even running around and you know so it's a little bit easier in that sense she's a bit more kind of distractible they're all different they say totally yeah totally um definitely with my two anyway they're like chalk and cheese my son was really slight and didn't like to move around too much and she's already trying to sit up at three months and she's so heavy and chunky and it's just mad they grow so fast and of course with your first baby you just kind of keep waiting for the you're hoping for them to meet their their milestones and you're looking at you know all the different things they're doing and then you know if you have subsequent babies and your third baby you're going stop stop now stop don't don't do anything else you you just want them to stay in your arms you want them to stay tiny you want them to just feed all the time and you want them to be in your bed and you know you've realized that actually it goes so fast it goes so quickly and you can never get it back once it's gone, that's it. Because once they start answering you back, uh, you have to look on it as that then you feel like they're answering you back because up until now they've done your bidding, you know, kind of in a way. But then there's a stage when they, they're asking questions and they may not be happy with the answers or they may challenge you on the answers that you give them or they disagree with you. And you, that's, that's quite challenging because it's, it's really good and it's really important because... They are learning to think for themselves and that's when you have to take your deep breaths and that's when you go looking for courses and and you start asking, what do you do when they do this? Um, so it's all about, again, about supporting at that point and not sort of almost becoming a toddler yourself and stamping your foot and saying, because I, you have to do it because I say so. You know, you have to acknowledge that they are moving on and becoming their own, very much their own being. And it's really interesting watching them. But again, it's another challenging stage because all the stages are challenging. And the next stage is schoolboy. Then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like a snail unwillingly to school. KCLR. As We Like It was produced by Monica Hayes and made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee.